My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a woman with over a decade of service in the U.S. Army. This guest has never backed away from a challenge and is always looking for her next adventure. She's worked on presidential details, securing routes, and scouring the area for potential hazards and improvised explosives that could be detrimental to the commander-in-chief. She's deployed to Afghanistan and commanded an explosive ordnance company. She now spends her time training and evaluating the next generation of officers that will be joining the service as a professor of military science at Florida Atlantic University. This guest also is getting ready to undertake being a solo competitor in the tactical games, but she will also be a participant in the 7X Human Performance Project. She's here this week to tell her story. Please welcome Katie Hernandez. What's going on? Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had talked to your partner for the 7X Human Project uh, last week, and he said you got to get her on because there's some amazing stuff about her. When I started looking into it, he's absolutely right. You've done some pretty amazing things. There's a couple things that I want to talk about in this podcast tonight, and I always kind of try and focus in on something. You've never really backed away from challenges, and that goes back to even high school when um, someone challenged you to stop being a cheerleader, get on the lacrosse team, and you were like, yeah, absolutely, okay. So let's talk a little bit about growing up, facing challenges, kind of staring them down, and how that has helped you back then, now, and how you think it'll help you when you take over the 7X performance project and the tactical games? All right. So basically, I grew up in poverty. I grew up in a, you know, a divorced household and uh, we, we lived meal to meal, my little sister and I. And uh, my mom was a saint. She raised us by herself. And uh, so, yeah, we grew up in a situation where sports and athletics weren't really an option. And so by the time I got to be a junior in high school, that was when uh, you did some digging. <laughs> that was my phys ed teacher. Okay. And that was when uh, my phys ed teacher uh, pulled me aside and kind of asked, you know, what I was doing with, with my life. And he was the head lacrosse coach at the time. So uh, I got into athletics because of him. Yeah. So I want to ask you about that. Since, since you grew up so poor, you were looking for a challenge. Sports really weren't um, an option. And I want to kind of dig mentally right off the bat. Do you think that's why you try so hard now at the stuff that you're doing, the tactical games? Because we'll get into that later on, because I want to talk about some prior partners that you've had and and how you uh, maybe yelled at them during the competition to be more competitive and things like that. 
But I want to know if that childhood lent itself to this and you being ultra competitive in everything you do, because it's kind of the the old story of fighting for scraps and things like that. I don't want to put a melodramatic tone on it, but it, it kind of is that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it was just like, you know, I, I like I said, I had a little sister and always trying to, you know, shield her, protect her from some of the things that we had to deal with growing up. Um, I think my mentality was definitely, you know, fight or flight kind of thing. My, my mentality was definitely more of the fight. Um, always, always a protector, you know, if I could shield her from any, anything growing up, that's kind of the role I took. And, you know, I was, you know, kind of, uh, had to be a rock during that time. So I think it definitely hardened me and definitely took those experiences from childhood into, into adulthood. Now you had an older brother too, correct? I do. Okay. And he was in the U.S. Army too, correct? Yes. Okay. I want to talk about family because I've heard two different stories, so I want to make sure that I'm hearing it right. When you tell your mom you're going in, she's like, falls apart. Then you come back a couple weeks later and you tell her, oh, yeah, also I'm going into EOD with explosives and things like that. Makes her even more upset. Now, did you join before your older brother or was he already in and that was kind of an established thing and that's what upset her so bad? Or were you kind of the one taking that first leap? So, yeah, so he's my stepbrother. So we never really uh, grew up together, um, but he, he was in the Ranger Bat growing up and he was kind of like uh, a distant, you know, you know, brother and he was always in Georgia. And so um, I would call him if I had questions, but when I got in, it was, I was in college at this point. And so when I made that phone call to my mom, I think it was more of her just being like, Oh, my baby's joining the military. Like <laughs> she wasn't expecting it. It would definitely, you know, I had uh, talked about being in the military when I was a young kid. My, my mom tells stories all the time, but it was never like an aspiration when I was going through college, I was going to be a phys ed teacher and uh, a recruiter got me. So it was completely random and out of the blue for her. So I think it was more of a shock. Well, I'm glad you brought up that recruiter because that was the second challenge I wanted to talk about. Uh, I think he challenged you to some pull-ups um, <laughs> and that started you on your way. Now, I got to tell you, if someone would have challenged me to pull-ups, I joined the military, but that's definitely not selling me on it. Now, they, I'm not saying they got me for an expensive cost, but definitely pull-ups would not have been it. Basically, I was walking by, I had just transferred colleges, and uh, he had his booth set up, and he's like, you look, you know, like you could do some pull-ups and win a free t-shirt, and I was like, all right, so I did some pull-ups, got my t-shirt, and he's like, you're perfect, you know, tight in here, so <laughs> that's how that happened. Uh, you know, in talk, I, I want to talk about that, because a lot of people have said they joined the military. Uh, for a way out. A lot of guys that I've talked to on the show have, have talked about they wanted a way out. Um, and that was the best way to get away from what they were doing. Growing up as poor as you did, not having a lot of those things, was this kind of the first time that it afforded you to live a, a better life? I mean, you've got three meals a day. You've got all these things. You have college behind you. I'm sure you weren't, you know, uh, driving around in a BMW in college, but it gave you that opportunity to make some real money. Was that one of the things that went into it or was it strictly a patriotic, I want to, you know, do this for my country? 
Yeah, honestly, the paycheck wasn't even a factor. Um, I was the first one to go to college. Um, I was kind of naive and I was just like, you know, I didn't even realize, you know, we had signed loans, but at the time I didn't understand what student loans were. And, you know, so the money thing didn't really have a factor in it. It was just kind of like, oh, I get to join the United States military. Like I can do that. And I think it was at a, it was a perfect time. It was at a time where I needed probably some discipline, um, and some guidance and, uh, the military definitely provided that for me. I was able to, I've been described as a, a pit bull in a China shop kind of thing. And, you know, if I have purpose and direction and I, I'll get after it, but if I don't have that, I'm just like re- wrecking havoc. So, <laughs> Well, can we talk about that a little bit? When you say that you were at that phase in college, what what was actually going on with you? Um, so basically, I was 17 when I went away um, and I was six hours from home, you know, and uh, first time I really experienced freedom and got to, you know, have, you know, be out of the house with no rules. And I was like, oh, I can make my own rules. And I, you know, so, you know, got into the party scene quite a bit. Um, I think that was, you know, I was able to play two sports. I had over three, five GPA. And so I was doing all the good things, but I was also partying on the weekends and, you know, I kept getting caught doing that. Um, so, you know, when I'd get in trouble, the Dean was always like, you know, what am I supposed to do with you? You know, you're playing two sports for us. You, you have a good GPA. And she was just frustrated all the time because, you know, she she knew my parents on a first name basis. Um, at that point, you know, and she, you know, she's like, I don't even know what to do with you anymore. <laughs> so going back to your parents, I, I want to talk a little bit about that because I think that ties into right here. Um, were you on good terms with both parents? Um, so at this point in college, I had my mom and then my, she had met my stepdad at this okay. point, my, I call him my bio dad. My bio dad was no longer in the picture. Um, hadn't seen him in, you know, since I was, you know, early in high school, I believe it was. Um, so yeah, at point, it, I was, uh, I think I was just still making my parents proud at this point. My stepdad and my mom just like, you know, I'm still going to college. Like, yeah, you know, I'm getting in trouble for no partying too much, but, uh, still at college. So they're still proud of me. <laughs> How was that relationship with you and your stepfather? You know, it was good. I think it was a pretty, you know, normal trajectory as far as a relationship goes with a step parent, you know, there's always some turbulence in your formative years. Uh, but as I've gotten older, I have definitely grown to appreciate, you know, he, was there because he was choosing to be there, not because he had to be kind of thing. And, you know, obviously I had a biological father who chose not to be there. Uh, so, you know, in retrospect and looking back, I'm very grateful, grateful for him. Does any of that factor into how you lead today? Because being a leader, especially a commander and stuff, you really are kind of taking care of your family. So does any of that kind of stuff go in and factor into how you are a commander, how you mentor these guys in ROTC and stuff? Yeah, I think that definitely has a lot to do with it. Um, I think I've also just faced a lot of, you know, like adverse situations early on um, in, in the military as well, in a very dominating, like male dominating, you know, for, um, 
job. So I think dealing with some of the things I had to deal with early on has gotten to me where I am today. Okay. Can we talk about a couple of those things? Yeah. All right. So let's go into it. As you go in, you go to, you're not going to go to basic. You're going to, you, you go through uh, OTC um, and you choose your branch and everything, correct? Basic officer course. Yeah, I went then... to like a, you know, basic leadership course. That was, you know, our, my basic. It wasn't actual basic training. I went to uh, like a month and a half. We had Jill sergeants, but it, it's nothing compared to basic. <laughs> and so when you do that uh, and, and you choose your branch, um, why was it that you picked? Because you, you said you go through, t- there, I mean, there was a ton of things you could have picked. Why pick that? Um, so basically I was sitting in a uh, Bullock basic officer leadership course as a brand new Lieutenant. And, um, I was actually branched ordinance. And at the time I didn't really know what ordinance was. It was, you know, logistics and that wasn't really my my style. So I'm sitting in class one day and had a couple of EOD techs, explosive ordinance disposal techs walk in and they didn't say much. They just walked to the front of the classroom with a bunch of swagger and they're like, well, if you guys want to blow shit up for a living, meet us after class. And I was like, and they left. And uh, I was like, I don't know what they do or what EOD is, but I want to be like them. So after class, I met up with them and that's how I started that journey. Let's talk about some of the adversity. So where where does that first kick in in your career? EOD school. Okay. Let's talk about it. I know that that it one it's not a uh it, it's not a very um easy school at all. Um and I know there's some things where uh 85 to pass test, but if you miss one, it's worth 16, so that automatically drops you to an 84. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, not only competing academically, but you're competing physically and you're trying to make your way into a field that, I mean, let's be frank, a month ago, you had no idea what it even was. Right, exactly. Um, so for me, I, I learned very early on, um, and, and, you know, just speaking specifically as a female, um, so I'll give I'll give a story. So basically, as you're going through school, you choose who you get to practice different problems with. So, for example, if you're going through IEDs, you practice going, uh, you know, hands on with IEDs or whatever the case might be. Um, so you you practice with a partner and eventually, you know, a few months in, you start to go to the same partner and you practice with that person. Um, you know, I was the only female that was pretty normal up until this point in the military. And um, so obviously all the rest of the guys, they were partnered with other guys. And I remember getting called in by the division instructor. He was the head of the division at the time. And he locked me up and he's just like, you know, I've been hearing some things from the instructors. And at this point, I have no idea, you know, what he's talking about. And He's like, you know, you've been getting really close with your practice partner. And it was the first time that I was like, what are you talking about? You know, and um, it was the first time I'd get, gotten locked up. And it was the first time that I was starting to realize, like, you know, perception is reality. And, you know, I, explained, I was like, sir, there, you know, there's nothing going on. And I was like, I was frank with him, um, probably more frank than I should have been. But I told him none of the other guys are in here for this reason. The only reason why I'm in here is because I'm a female. So then we had a whole nother talk. Um, and he kind of 
he kind of, you know, backed off a little bit and was just like, you know what, you're going to go through your career and you're going to face some challenges as a female and you need to be extra careful with how you present yourself. And, and that was like my first taste of how being a female in a leadership role was going to go and how, you know, how many precautions that I had to take to make sure that I was respected and make sure that people took me seriously. So that was my first taste of that. And so how do you deal with it? Um, so another example, when I was a lieutenant, um, and I was a platoon leader, it's very common in EOD for officers to hang out with their enlisted soldiers. Um, and that was one thing that I could never do. Um, for me, my reputation was everything. And so I never wanted to blur those lines. So while other platoons were in the bar, um, I was never able to do that. And, you know, I, I did that on my own accord because, you know, perception's reality. I learned that very, very young. So um, that's kind of how I dealt with it. I just kind of made sure that there was no room for interpretation by, you know, anybody. Uh, do you regret that now, now that you look back on it 10 years later? No, I mean, I'm still, I still am very, you know, um, cautious about what I do outside of work. You know, I don't really drink with, you know, my, my peers or anything like that. Um, I definitely put myself into a, a standard of where like, you know, if you don't want to be in a situation where it could look compromising, don't put yourself in those situations. Um, so that, that's what, you know, I, I still kind of am the same way today. Now this is going to be a career. You're, you're going to finish out your entire 20, correct? undecided. <laughs> okay. So let's say you do, of okay. course, you're going to get more rank. You're a captain right now, right? Yes. Uh, you're probably looking at major pretty quick. Yeah. I'm a list. <laughs> okay. So you get to be major, you get to be light colonel. Uh, there's going to be a lot more stuff that comes with that. A lot more people that you're in front of, uh, a lot more. Do you think that's going to put you even more on edge? I don't think so. I think at this point, I've definitely developed my leadership style, um, how I am at work and in uniform. Um, you know, I'm, I pride myself on being very professional. Um, and, you know, outside of work, that's when I get to, you know, let my hair down and, you know, be a little bit more relaxed. But when I have the uniform on, you know, I take it seriously. And, you know, I've never really had issues um, up until this point. Um, as far as people crossing the line, if you know what I mean. Um, I think so at this point, I think I've done a pretty good job at, you know, making sure that those lines never get fuzzy. When you talk about this and you say that you don't drink with your guys and you really don't hang out, I've also heard you say something that's pretty interesting to me about the female card. Uh, and it's something that you push really hard in ROTC and you say, don't ever let that female card come out um, and, and don't use it. If you want to be where you want to be, you got to do the work for it. Do you think that that is a different opinion from a lot of people? Do you think you're in the minority or do you think you're in the majority of the female card? Um, so basically when I say that, um, you know, I, I have talks with my female cadets all the time. And it's kind of cool that I get to intervene at a time before they, you know, take their oath and join the military. Um, so 
you know, I try to mentor them. And some of the advice I, I give them is, you know, you're going to be judged based on your physical fitness, whether that's fair or not. And you as a female, you know, your male counterparts are already going to uh, expect not, not much from you. So if you show up and you're kicking ass and you're outrunning them and you're outlifting them, that's a great way to initially um, form that type of respect. If you are that female that is constantly falling out, that doesn't know how to climb a rope, that can't swim, um, don't pull that female card and be like, oh, I'm a girl, I can't do that. Um, so I try to put it in their heads that you can do it. Don't use the, you know, the fact that your biological makeup might, you know, put you at, at a disadvantage. Learn how to swim, learn how to lift, run faster, be better. So that's the kind of um, advice that I give to my female cadets. But let's let's play devil's advocate for a minute. Let's say they're not as fast. Say they can't lift as much as you, run as fast as you, all those things that you're teaching them. Are there other ways that they can hold their own? Because I believe that there is other than just running faster, lifting. Or I think there are other ways that they can definitely meld themselves into the system and show that they know what they're doing. Oh, 100%. And uh, I, I give the same speech to my females as far as tactics goes. We actually just got out of the field. Um, and uh, there was one lane uh, and, you know, I think there was maybe six female cadets in a platoon of 50. And uh, I pulled them out you know, after the lane was done, they had a, a platoon attack they were running. And, uh, you know, I was very impressed. There was a few females that I was like, hey, you had a presence, you weren't in a leadership position and you kicked ass. And I was like, you guys, like to the other females, like you guys got to look at and see what they're doing. And you can't be, can't be quiet. You can't be meek. You have to have a presence. And these are the females that just showed me that. And so, you know, because you have an array of females that, you know, from very quiet and shy to no, I'm here and you're going to, you know, you're going to know that I'm here. And so when I show them like, hey, that's how you need to command a room or a platoon, look to these females. They know what they're talking about. Like they they know their tactics. They can, you know, project their voice from their stomach. Um, so it you can definitely make your mark and, and be a presence without, you know, fitness. But I do think, I mean, it is part of our job. I do think it's very important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, with that, w when you talk about every way that, that you funnel them out, I, I got to ask the question, do you do the same with the male uh, recruits? Do you teach them and give them a different perspective to look at while you're uh, in charge of this? Oh, for sure. Um, with my males, I mean, I, I definitely have the same conversations. It's just, you know, a little bit different. Um, so for my males, like they constantly come up to me for lifting advice and working out and all these things. And, you know, I think it's, but I think it's because I walk the walk, you know, I don't think they'd be coming to me for workout advice if, you know, I didn't show them every day a PT that I could hang with them. Um, they're like, oh, she knows what she's talking about. She can do this. Um, so they definitely come to me for that. And I definitely work with the males who are also, you know, shy and don't have a presence. And when you talk to them, they kind of, you know, cower down a little bit and get real quiet. And I, I definitely tell them, like, hey, you need to, you know, look me in the eyes. You need to speak up. And, you know, I teach them everything from 
how to tie the roots to how to shake a hand. <laughs> that uh, I I hear that, and I I wonder about the next generation of military because, as you know, right now we we've come to a shortfall. We didn't meet recruiting. Uh, in all of them, except I think for the Marine Corps this year was the only one that met their recruiting goals. You also have a new world of officers and enlisted coming in. And what I mean by that is you have a completely different set of morals, a completely different set of how they look at the world through their eyes. I, you know, I see it in my daughters, how they look at the world and just the people that they go to school with. It is way different than when I grew up, when I joined the military. Do you worry at all about the future? You know, I don't know if I'm worried. I, I think it it comes down to, say, I have, you know, 15 cadets graduating and taking their oath. Maybe one of them want to go combat arms. And that is a huge shift from, you know, the... 10 years ago when I was in ROTC, I think for us, like everybody wanted to be ranger, cool guy, SF, door kicker. Um, everybody was competing. Now it's a struggle and I, I definitely try to spark that competitiveness in them, um, but it's definitely a challenge. So I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I'm worried, but I hope that other schools across the nation aren't experiencing this. Um, because if we all are, then, then yeah, I guess I'm a little concerned as far as, you know, the quality of, of door kicker, um, we're getting nowadays. But even more than that, um, I mean, a, a completely down to the cellular level, they even look, I believe at military service in a different way, uh, than it, it has been in past generations. They saw this war go on for 20 plus years now they look at it, and you said a lot of guys are going into logistics, they're going into maintenance, they're going into supply, the, the different things like that. Right. To me, that means that they're looking more as a, a career than as a, um, I guess you would say like an adventure, you know, doing the job and doing this great job and being patriotic and all these things. It's more of a, okay, I'm out of college and I need a job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they definitely have a different mentality as far as, you know, I haven't heard many of them say they want to make a career out of it. I've heard many of them say, you know, I want to do my four years. I want to get some benefits. Um, and then this is going to prepare me for my, my next job. Um, so I don't, I don't know. It, it is definitely different. And, and that's exactly where I'm going with this because we hear the same thing. Whenever we're teaching uh, at the academy in law enforcement and we ask them, what do you want to do in five years? They're like, I'm going to do this job for a while and then I think I'm going to go over here and do this. What worries me about that is you have that constant turnover. There's no one becoming a gray beard. There's no one bringing that operational experience, that, that uh, educational experience. And especially when you look at that with more and more turnover, you need good officers uh, because – when you have bad officers, it makes it bad for everybody. So that's what I mean by does it worry you? Because I think that's exactly where I'm headed with that. You've got a lot of people that it's just a job. They're going to go in, they're going to do it, and they're going to be out, and they're going to, you know, go into the corporate world. 
I definitely have my concerns. I, I definitely hear exactly what you're saying. I just hope and pray that there's enough, you know, American pride somewhere in this country that we're going to continue to fight our nation's wars to the best that we can. You know, I mean, you're like you said, recruiting numbers are down and hopefully, hopefully we figure out, we figure that out because it, it is a kind of a shame to see the direction, but hopefully this is, you know, it'll be on its way up soon. <laughs> I, I, I will agree. I think it's all cyclical. So I think that definitely it's going to rebound from it. I wonder how long it's going to take to rebound. And, and like I said, I'm seeing with these college degrees now that, that they're turning away from that. They're even turning away from law enforcement first responder with the degrees because there, there is this idea out there that they can do so much better by doing a, a corporate job. They don't have to deal with the stress. They don't have to deal with um, everything that comes along with it, the bad with the good. And they, they look at it in a very short term now uh, instead of let me do this. Let me figure out who I am and then maybe get out. It's automatically as they sign that dotted line, it's I'm in for four and I'm out. Yeah, I definitely think technology and the online presence, social media, I think that has a lot to do with what's happening. Let's talk about a couple of your duty assignments. Now you were in Hawaii. Where were you stationed at in Hawaii? Um, I was stationed on Oahu. Progressing forward, like you talked about with the technology and stuff, there's a lot more of that with the with all of the intelligence units that are there and things like that. Do you think that that is the future for the military? Yeah, absolutely. Even in the EOD community, we're starting to feel the effects of you know how fast technology is progressing. You know, we're starting to see bombs attached to drones and just like the wildest things. And uh, so, yeah, it's all up to you know, the ingenuity and the creativity of these bomb makers and now, you know, sprinkle technology into that and you don't really know what to expect anymore. So let me ask you while we're on that topic, what's our biggest concern that we have um, in a terrorist idea, bomb idea? Is it dirty bombs? Or are we looking at mass, uh, you know, where we're at a concert or a stadium? What What do you think right now that we're looking at as a, very difficult obstacle to get over for us to even maybe catch up with the technology or are we ahead of it and there's nothing to worry about at all? Uh, I wouldn't say we're definitely caught up with it. Um, I think it depends. Are we talking, you know, overseas? Are we talking here at home? Um, I think here at home, the insider threat, you know, people using information because you know they have they're privy to that information i think right now that's that should be our biggest concern is that insider threat overseas when we're dealing um you know with ieds and stuff for in in my opinion the biggest threat is just like the creativity of of the terrorists at this point um obviously nuclear war would definitely be you know up there as far as catastrophe um and, and we definitely are trained in, in nuclear you know situations and um hopefully we never have to use that but so um let's move on with your career a little bit i want to talk about this presidential detail that you're on uh, mostly this was in hawaii correct because at the time i think you were assigned primarily with Obama when he was president. And he did a lot of stuff in the Pacific area. He had a home in Hawaii. 
Um, can we talk a little bit about that detail? I don't know how much information you can get into it, but kind of how you got picked up for that, some of the stuff that you were doing with it. And then if we can talk about a couple of the incidences that really kind of stick out in your mind from it. Um, so yeah, so basically part of the job of EOD is we call them VIP missions or very important people missions and the president, uh, POTUS, uh, president of the United States, he's part of that. So anytime, um, you know, President Obama would travel anywhere in the the Pacific area, the PACOM area, um, we were there. We, they would always send teams out. Or if he was traveling to Hawaii, um, there was always a detail there. Um, so it afforded me a lot of opportunity to travel, um, Nepal, Malaysia, Thailand, a bunch of different places like that. Um, but when we were in Hawaii, it was a lot of uh, checking luggage, you know, at checkpoints and stuff for him, um, you know, before people went back into his development where he had his house. Uh, craziest thing you ever saw in luggage? <laughs> I think it's a fair um, question. It is a fair question. Um, I've seen some crazy I mean, we had celebrities back where he he lived. So there was always costumes and the I mean, you saw the classic things. I think the roughest part of that job was how dirty it got. It's, there there was a few instances, especially overseas, where you open up someone's luggage and you're, you just smell and you have to go through it. It's not, not great. Overall, is that a... Uh... Is it a good assignment or is it one where you're kind of like, I mean, it's cool that I get to travel and stuff, but it's not really doing, you know, what you went in for? Because I have a feeling that you you went into that for the thrill of it. Going through luggage, not that exciting. Yeah, I think it's just like any other detail, but there are some perks. I mean, you get to go to some pretty awesome venues and, you know, NFL games. There's, you know, there's, you know, bomb techs at huge events and you get to go and see some of that stuff. And like I said, the travel was great. And when you're not working, you get to, you know, go experience and be a tourist for a little bit before you have to go back on duty. So I, I loved it. I, I didn't mind it at all. Favorite part of Hawaii? Ooh, the North shore. I love the North shore. I used to, I used to live up there and gosh, what was, I forget where I lived, but I would like run down, it was like one of the highest points at the North Shore. I'd run down, I'd jump in the ocean, go for a swim, and then run back up the hill. I used to do that every weekend. That was my favorite. Um, any food or anything that you miss from Hawaii? Ooh, the fresh pineapple. <laughs> yeah, uh, I really miss the L&L. That was one of the first places we went when we went back there. <laughs> yep. It's horrible for you, but it tastes so good. So, you know, I guess, I don't know. I don't know if you're into that kind of food. So you, you chose a fruit. I chose a fried food. So, you know, whatever, you know, we miss what we miss. Okay. So let's move on throughout your career. Now you've, you've been in a couple of places, Richmond, Virginia, North Florida, South Florida, um, in Richmond, Virginia, you're kind of in the heart of everything. What are you doing while you're there? Uh, so there I was just going to the captain's career course. Okay. Um, I got promoted to captain and that's just like the next step for, for when you get promoted. And then I guess the next place you moved to was North Florida. Where was I after that? Um, 
you know, I went to, uh, I went to Fort Campbell after that. Okay. So this is when we're getting around deployment times then, correct? Deployment times. Yep. I was a commander there as well. So Fort Campbell, I was there for four years. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, not only being there, but let's talk about the deployment things that you took away from it. Um, what you saw kind of the lens that you looked at it through, uh, because there was major stuff going on in Afghanistan. Um, especially with the kind of warfare that was going on there. First off, let's talk Campbell, how you liked it and, and kind of what you did to, to fit in there because after Hawaii, you know, you're going to Campbell and they have a very much uh, uh, different mission than Hawaii. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Out of, out of Campbell though, I mean, it's de- it definitely brought you closer to your peers. Like when I was in Hawaii, uh, we were kind of, my unit was just kind of on their own. So being back at a conventional, you know, base where there was a ton of sister companies, it, it definitely felt like I was closer to the community. How was that feeling coming back into it? Because I mean, technically that would be kind of your first step back into big army. I mean, oh, especially sure. working as autonomously as you were in Hawaii. Yeah, I think at the time as a lieutenant in Hawaii, I didn't know any better. Um, I was part of two companies. And by the time the drawdown started happening, our sister company got shut down um, and forced back either into conventional military, out of EOD or out of the military. Um, So that was kind of hard. But yeah, so really I didn't know any better. And then once I got back into the States and I was like, Oh, everybody knows everybody except for me. And I'm like, hi. (laughs) How was that transition coming back into it? It was good. You know, it definitely opened up as far as, you know, being able to talk to different people and call different people and like, hey, what do I do for this? You you got to rely on a lot more, you know, and make those connections. So I, I liked it. I did. Two of those years you're in command, correct? Let's talk about taking your first command because it's funny. I've talked to other officers on here and they say when you take your first command as a captain, that's your first time being a captain and being in command of a company. And it's most likely going to be your last time you're the commander of a company. So let's talk about that, how that kind of focuses, because it's a weird thing to be in charge your first time and it being your last time too. Oh, yes. From the day that you know we had our ceremony and you know i was officially the commander god there's no better feeling i loved every single day i mean of course there was some you know bad days of command but i still loved it even on the worst of um i never took it for granted and you know typical command for eud is 12 to 15 months and uh every time that time would start to creep up you know, my battalion or brigade commander would be like, would you like a few more months? Would you like a few more months? And eventually that added up and uh, it was 24 months total that I was in command. And I was so grateful for every single day. So let's talk about that. Since it's only 12 to 15 months and you do a 24 month rotation, that gives you a, a, a tremendous amount more experience than your normal person that has been a company commander. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think it also gives you the opportunity to continue to kind of mold the company um, 
to where you'd like to see it and kind of, you know, if you have goals and aspirations for the company, you get to see those through. When you're only in command for, you know, a year, you barely get your feet underneath you before they're changing you out. So, uh, any problems that you saw as you took over as command, like I said, it's your first time. So anything that you maybe went into it thinking it was going to be a certain way that it wasn't that way. You know, not really. Uh, you know, of course I hate to keep bringing this up. It's kind of cliche, but you know, I was, um, the only female, you know, going into this unit and they, you know, they hadn't had a female at that unit and, you know, being the commander, it was kind of like a dog sniffing. Like they were kind of checking me out. Is she cool? I'm checking them out. Like, are they going to, you know, respect, is this going to be a mutual thing here? And eventually with time, just like, but I think, you know, it go back to the physical fitness part the first thing we all did together is go for a run. And so smoking them on the run, that was kind of like my first, like, hey, guys, I'm here. And, uh, you know, after a few weeks and things started to calm down and they didn't, they realized, you know, having a female commander wasn't going to be the worst thing, you know, um, everything was great after that. I want to talk about your mental status as you're doing this. You're coming back in, like we said, to Big Army for kind of the first time in your career, you're a captain. How's your mental state? Uh, how are you feeling? Um, I know we talked about in the beginning, you learned very quickly um, to kind of, I, I would say, keep your distance from certain situations and stuff. How are you feeling as a captain being in charge? You've got to know that more eyes are even on you. And that's when we brought up a little earlier, Major, Lieutenant Colonel, there's going to be even more eyes. So how are we doing mentally uh, as a captain? You know, I, I had the best for a sergeant. So I relied on him. He was able to kind of take me under his wing. I mean, at this point I was, you know, in the military, what, six, nah, seven years, seven years or so. And, you know, he's been in 16, 17. He has probably a decade and so much more experience than I did. And he, he was just so great. Anytime there was something that we needed to make a decision on, you know, I kind of make, you know, my recommendation, he, you know, he's always very respectful and always just been like, you know, man, that's a great idea, but you know, what about this? And I'd look at him like, that's genius. <laughs> and, you know, we'd kind of, you know, play off each other and work. I, I can probably name twice that we might've had a, you know, disagreement on something. And, you know, we always, we, you know, we would go into my office, we'd hash it out there. And then we'd come out like unified and have a decision. I, I couldn't have asked for a better first sergeant. And to me, having a great first sergeant, um, you know, a great NCO by your side, that can make or break your command. So I was very fortunate to have somebody that I worked so well with. Okay, so let's play devil's advocate. So your military side's covered, but personally, seems kind of lonely. You know, it's funny. Every every time I would start a new position, you always have that meeting, that first meeting with your boss, and you know, you come in and they're like, "So, um, you know, your spouse? No, not married. Oh, any kid? No, no kids. Do you have a Do you have a pet? At the time, I didn't even have a pet, so it's just kind of like, uh, you know, right, focusing on on work and working out. So yeah, I guess it did get a little lonely, but 
had a great group of, you know, friends and support. So, <laughs> and, and, and that's where I was going with that was with, with the support group around you. Um, of course it makes the transitions easier, but I, I always think in a command position, you have to be very careful. Like we've talked about a couple times so far, you have to be very careful about what you're doing. You have to almost, I don't want to say second guess everything you're doing, but you definitely have to put some thought into it. Oh, for sure. And like I said, if there was anything I wasn't sure of, which was a lot, you know, I would, uh, my first Sergeant John, I'd go to John and, you know, we would talk it out and God, he was so smart. Like I said, I owe a lot of my success during my command. It was a very successful command when we came, when we got, you know, finished with it. And I owe a lot to him and his wife, you know, I was there for, you know, holidays and, you know, spending time with them and their, their kids. And, um, they kind of, they definitely took me in during that time. All right. So let's talk about the deployment as you, you go into it. Um, you are sent to Afghanistan, correct? Yes. This was prior to command. Yes. Okay. So uh, let's talk about that op tempo, um, what you're doing because big army is one thing, but now you're not only big army, but you're in a forward area too. Um, let's talk about the op tempo, what you thought about it, how that felt to be over there doing the kind of job that you were doing. And then once again, if anything stuck out to you. For sure. Um, <laughs> you know, I got into country and obviously I had no idea what to expect. You never really, you never really do until you're there. And, um, or a few things. I remember how hot it was. I remember, you know, like how dusty and dirty everything was. And, you know, there, the op tempo wasn't crazy, you know, at this time, this was 2018 and 2019. Um, like I was still able to, you know, work out and eat. And I, and I also remember when I first got there, I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I remember they were talking about, you know, coming in and, you know, our meeting on Saturday and this on Sunday. I'm like, Oh, well, I guess we don't have weekends off, huh? And they're like, we're deployed. And I was like, I don't know. No one's ever explained this to me. And they're like, yeah, no, there's no weekends off in war. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so it was just like my real first dose. And, you know, you kind of get in the swing of it to the point where you're just like, I kind of, this is simple life. You know, you don't have to go grocery shopping. You don't have to pay bills. There's nothing else you have to worry about. It's kind. It was kind of nice. Um, and you're kind of just on this like, repeat mode day after day, day after day, um, until something happens. And for me, something did happen. Um, I did lose a friend, um, out there. Uh, he was a team member. Uh, so EOD operates in teams of two. We have a team leader, team member, and, uh, they were out routine patrol and, uh, he got blown up and I'll never forget getting that call, um, all the things going through my head. And, you know, I was very grateful for, you know, the time that my command allowed me to, you know, go to the casket, you know, when we, you know, sent him off and do all these things. And um, he was under the command of my friend. And so, I, you know, we got to talk a lot and, I was there for him through that time. They were a National Guard unit. And uh, after something like that happens, you definitely, at least for me, 
I started having those thoughts of why are we here? Um, you know, it, it just seems so pointless. And, you know, at this war that, you know, no one's winning, no one's losing, we're just kind of stuck and we're still, you know, we're still losing people and, you know, him not going home to his wife and everything else. And, um, so I got a bit bitter and a little cynical after that. It made being there a lot more treacherous day after day. And you're just like, you start to question, you know, you start to question like, what are, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Why are we putting, you know, it, it seemed, it seemed senseless at the time. Okay. So how far are we into your deployment when this happens? Six months of a, how long deployment? Nine months. Okay. So we got about three months left. When you see this happen, I know this is going to sound like a strange question. First time the army's real to you. First time the military's real, where there's real consequences, real actions. Uh, how do you take that? that? No, that's a that's a fair thing to ask. Um, you know, going through school, EOD school, you definitely get dosage of how heavy you know, the, the sacrifices, you know, every day you drive onto, you know, the school base and we have a beautiful memorial. It's a wall and there's four sides to the wall, army, Navy, air force, um, Marines. And every time a tech, um, dies their name in, in, you know, in combat, their name gets put up onto the wall. And, uh, you know, we, when I was going through school, we saw that, um, we saw a name being put onto a wall. And I think that's, that was our first dose of like, you're not only joining the military, but you're joining that you're voluntarily choosing to be an explosive ordnance disposal technician. And these are the risks. And it's so, um, you know, it's so, voluntary to a point to where at any time, if it's too much, you can pull your volunteer statement and say, I don't want to be an EOD tech anymore. Um, so you, you start to get little doses of that. Um, and, you know, in, in training, they definitely put the heaviness into, you know, if you mess up a problem, if you're going hands-on on an IED and it goes off, um, we have like sound um, like buzzers, they'll go off if, if you mess up during practice and you don't, you know, you're whoever's, you know, running the problem, they don't have to say much when you mess up, like the whole weight of the room kind of, you know, dampens and, you know, not only did you just kill yourself, but you killed everybody else, you know, within, you know, 15 feet of you. And so you start to get that, um, little doses, you know, here and there. But then when it happens in real life, I don't think anything really prepares you for that. Um, you know, seeing, you know, the flag and, you know, giving him, you know, you know, pinning, you know, your crest onto his casket and watching, you know, him fly away and taps and everything. Um, and all you want to do is honor him and, you know, let that family know that, you know, he's support he was supported and he died doing what he loved and this is what he wanted to do and it's so unfortunate and that's definitely what we signed up for um but it doesn't it didn't make it any easier do you have any second thoughts 
no, I love, I absolutely love what I do. Um, if, if I could, I would, I would stay at a lower rank to keep doing my job because, you know, I'm about to pick a major. And at that point, you know, you're going to be more staff and you're going to, you know, be more in the operational, you know, side of the house. Um, but no, I absolutely love my job. All right. So as we move through, we've talked about your command. We've talked about the deployments. Um, good, bad lessons learned. Good, bad lessons learned. Um, good, definitely the people that I've met. Um, I still keep in touch with a few of them and such great guys. Actually, my sister married one of my soldiers. <laughs> so I, I see... Uh, I see him quite often now, family gatherings and such. They're on their second kid, so I guess that's good. Um, well, that's what she always wanted to be. She's a real estate person. She wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. She wanted to have kids. There you go. You fulfilled <laughs> that dream for her. I know. Yeah, I introduced them. Who would have thought? Um, yeah. Um, but let's see. Lessons learned. Gosh. Um, I've learned in the last decade that you can, you can push yourself, um, harder than you could ever imagine your, your mental capacity to endure is so much greater than people even realize. And when you start to like tap into those, those, you know, situations where you get to see what you're made of, that's when I think the most growth happens. So all right. Now there is one that you skipped over. You didn't say the bad. The bad. The bad. Oh, man. Well, if I got to put a damper on things. Um, I would say the bad definitely being um, the mental health uh, of the, the soldiers in the formation. Um, I don't think that we do a good enough job at educating um, and giving soldiers the tools they need to bounce back from tragedy. Um, you know, it's very big in the military when something like that happens to put it in, you know, put it in your back pocket and we'll, we'll deal with it later. And, uh, you know, we got a mission, we got all these things, which is true. You know, after, after Slate died, um, that's what we had to do, you know, like, keep going, you know, we'll deal with when we get back, you know, our mental health, when we get back from the deployment and whatnot. And, um, then you get back and you go back to work and you never quite deal with those things. And, you know, you, you see it, you see it in the way, you know, some of your, your soldiers talk about certain instances and, you know, they, they kind of, they, they tell stories in a way. It's just like, you know, you should probably talk to someone about that or like there, there was such a stigma at least when i was in command about you know getting help or not even getting help but just you know talking to someone or figuring out a way to get back to homeostasis and getting back to you know your true north so to speak and um how to develop healthy habits um you know mental releases working out and eating healthy and all these things um i think we definitely missed the mark on that. So if I had a, if I had to pick a bad, that would, that would be it. But when you say all that and, and you might not like this, it sounds like that's coming from a personal perspective though. 
And what I mean by that is I think that there's more to the story about your friend dying in Afghanistan because that all sounds like it comes from a personal experience that you felt enabled to see it in others. Can we talk about that a little bit? Because I feel like there's more there than we're talking about. Yeah, 100%. I mean, especially when you're in a leadership position. Um, like I said, it was uh, a friend of mine. He was his company commander and he blamed himself. And to watch that and, you know, as a as a commander, um, you need to be strong and you need to hold it together. And um, because if your soldiers see you falling apart, um, they're, they're going to think, that, okay, it's okay for me to fall apart kind of thing. Like you definitely have to do some some healing behind closed doors before you show face. And, um, that's, that's the unfortunate aspect of, you know, war, you know, you don't, you don't get those days off like I was talking about. Um, and you know, I definitely have dealt with my own, um, mental struggles. Um, and you know, I'm doing a lot better now as far as recognizing when I'm going through, you know, my bouts, you know, I have bouts of depression where I'm up and I'm down and, um, I'm at a point now where I'm recognizing it and I, and I, I have found ways to try and cope with that. Um, you know, I, I'm seeking therapy and everything else. And, you know, I have a couple people that I, that I call, um, and kind of like life, a life coach, I guess, if you will. Um, and to know, you know, just to offer another perspective and to talk through things and, um, so that's where I'm at right now, but you're definitely right. Uh, I definitely deal with my own struggles, my own personal struggles. Why is it so hard for you to talk about it? Because it's still, I can tell, is if you see it in other people and you know it needs to happen, and I've heard you say on numerous other things and read about you, you're not a real emotional person. You're not a, not a cry and hug and all that kind of person. But I think it goes more than that. Um when we talk about this, you see it in the other people. If you know what needs to be done, why is it so hard for you or why has it taken so long for you to take that step? That's very fair. Um, that's a fair question. Um, you know, I think it has a lot to do with how often, you know, the military moves you, you know, as soon as you start to feel grounded or feel like you can, you know, start to, you start to feel more at home you move. Like I've moved every two years, my whole career, sometimes even less than that. And so this is really the first place, um, being in the ROTC realm where I feel like I have the time to take a step back and really address some of the, you know, unhealedness that I have. Um, and it, you know, it, we, um, you know, you're constantly going through, different things, tragedies, like we just experienced one um, within our ROTC community. I had a friend and a colleague, he was murdered. Um, and he was the freshman instructor um, for the for the cadets and he went home for the holidays. This happened um, in December, I believe, December 22nd, I believe the date was. Um, he went home found himself in a really unfortunate situation and he got shot and left in the street to die. And I remember getting that phone call and, you know, I was the one that had to call Diana, his wife, my friend, and, you know, not only try to be there for her as, you know, a friend on a personal level, 
but I was also the point of contact between the military and her, his, you know, his family. And so not only am I like, I'm so sorry and trying to be there for her, but I'm also like, you know, asking admin questions, like where, what address are you going to be at for the next 30 days? And that's hard. And a lot of that has to do with you, you know, composing yourself and me having to be like, okay, I'm very emotional about this, but I have to put on a strong face right now because I also have a job to do. Um, and you know, that, you know, I'm still, still dealing with that. You know, we had a visual at the beach with the cadets and I, you know, I broke down and it's probably the first time the cadets have really seen, you know, that emotional side of me, just like I lost it. I don't know we were all telling stories and memories about him and it just, you know, it happened and, uh, you know, it's, it's okay. It's okay to, to show emotions, but it's definitely, I, I definitely have to remember, like, I'm still, you know, their leader and they still look to me to, you know, not completely lose it. So trying to find that balance, I think that's where it comes from is trying to find that balance between being composed and being a leader and, you know, still being able to get, you know, the job done and also dealing with your emotions and having, um, and, you know, your outlets and how to get yourself back on track. So when do you deal with it then? Um, right now it's been, I like, I make schedules. I make schedule, uh, been practicing, been practicing a lot with, um, meditation and going through breathing exercises. And, um, I said, you know, having, you know, someone that I talk to on a regular basis, um, and just, you know, some things pop up and you're just like, wow, I didn't even realize about that, but now, you know, lights, you know, I'm speaking it out into the universe and lights being shed on it. And now I'm like, oh, I can deal with this now. Or a lot of the therapy that I've been in has been stress relieving. Like, I'm like, oh, wow. I feel like a burden's been lifting off, lifted off of me. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of been my journey. What you're talking about though is alternative therapy. And we, we've talked about that a lot on the show, alternative therapies that come in. Um, you see a lot of guys that, that get out there's art therapy, music therapy, meditation, cryotherapy. There's all these different kinds of things. And it's a question that I always ask, why do you think it is taking so long for the military or the government in general to pull these in and make them a standard? It's the same kind of question that I asked Zach, uh, why is it taking so long to make this the standard? Stigma. If I had to put a word to it, there was such a stigma for so long where, you know, if you're, you're a soldier, you have to be tough and you have to, you can't, you don't talk about your feelings and you, you don't, you definitely don't talk about, you know, war and deployments and stuff. You keep that all in. And when you get home, you, you deal with it by drinking and, you know, then, you know, it comes out with the family that I feel like that's why, you know, a lot of, so there's such a high divorce rate and issues with, you know, relationships and such when people come home, because we're, we're told, you don't talk about your feelings. That's, that's not something you do. Um, I think right now we're in a culture shift where we realize the ramifications and the repercussions of not talking about our feelings and not, you know, dealing with some of the trauma that we've experienced um, so I think we're starting to see a shift. Um, we're not quite there yet. There's a lot of work to be done. Um, but I will say, I think it's starting to become more acceptable 
to seek help when needed. Any of those things pop up with you? Any problems with alcohol? Any problems with anything like that that you ever saw where maybe it wasn't a full-blown, but you were like, hmm, that could be a problem quickly? I think for me, um, so fitness was has always been very important to me. So I, it never showed itself in the form of, you know, drugs or alcohol or anything like that. Um, for me, since being in the military, I think, I just get into these, you know, roller coaster of, of depression uh, where there'll be months where I just get really withdrawn. I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. It's hard for me to talk to family. It's hard for me to talk to anybody, friends. I'll just kind of, you know, if, I, if I'm go- going to the gym, I go to the gym, don't talk to anybody, I leave. And then I, you know, sit at home and I'm just like, it's just kind of being in a dark place. Um, so for me, I just go through kind of bouts of that. And then, you know, after a couple months or however long it lasts, it's just kind of like, oh, I think I'm going to be all right. And then, you know, I start to get back to myself. But um, so m- mine has never been substance abuse. I think mine more is uh, more mental for me. So when when these things happen, when I mean a month's a long time or a couple months is a really long time when you think about it. Does that ever when you look at it, does that ever concern you? Like, what if this doesn't is there ever a point, I guess the question would be, is there ever a point in there where you're like, ooh, maybe I won't pull out of this tailspin? When I start to recognize that I'm in one of these one of these spaces, um, I, there's a couple of people I let know. And, uh, usually they're the ones checking up on me and calling me and asking if I'm okay. Are, are you good? Have you gone to the gym today? What are we doing today? You should go and be social this weekend. You should do, you know, um, so I have a few key, key players in my life that make sure that, you know, I'm doing all right. All right. Well, let's talk about the therapy that you do. And and let's be honest, it's training. It's it's being in the gym. It's doing physical activity. That is kind of your main therapy that we talk about. Let's talk about this world record because it's pretty amazing. Um, and the I think the interesting part that stood out to me about it with you was a couple different things. One, when your friend broke the record, it wasn't really you were like, hey, congratulations. And you kind of forgot about it for a couple of years. And then you came back and you said, yeah, I'll, I'll take that from her. And then when you did it the first time, when you were trying for it the first time, or I guess just even practicing for it the first time, you only missed it by like 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, it was basically, I, I saw it online and I was in command at the time. I went to John, my first heart, and I was like, hey, you want to stick around after work and put me in the bomb suit? He's like, yeah, why? I was like, you know, I just kind of want to see where I'm at on this mile thing. And he was just like, this isn't a good idea. And I was like, no, I'm good. Like, let's just go do it. I got to see where I'm at. So against him, just to be like, this is a bad idea. Like he put me in the suit. We went for the run. I was so messed up. My equipment was all loose. My helmet was falling off. I was bleeding on my forehead after that, (laughs) after that run. Um, And, uh, but I learned a lot from that run and I was like, oh, okay. Got a little bit of work to do. And uh, yeah, that's how that started. (laughs) And so, with this, you, you set on this kind of mission to get this done. Um, let's talk about the workouts, what it takes mentally to get to that level, because 85 pound suit or 84 pound suit, 
84, right? 84, yeah. Yeah, 84 pound suit. It's a mile. Um, your time was crazy in it. Um, what does it take to mentally put yourself into that every day to go back to that? Because you know it sucks. You know your brain is going, it sucks going in that suit. It sucks running. What is it that's at the end of the road that's telling you, like, yeah, it's going to be all worth it in the end? Yeah, well, there's a few things happening at the time. Um, obviously, the overarching thing for me at that time was, you know, I was running for a cause. I was running for, you know, veteran mental mental health awareness. And I was working with a partner, Get Headstrong, and they were incredible throughout this whole time. Um, so that was definitely, you know, for me, one of the biggest, you know, let's, let's do this, you know, we're going to raise a lot of money for them. Um, I think as far as the suit goes though, I mean, gosh, my, my training was all over the place. Some days I'd have a really great day where I'd hit my times and, um, cause I always broke it down. I was always running, you know, different intervals and I had times that I had to, had to hit. And there was days where I was on point. I was like, yeah, feeling good. We're on track. And then there was times where I'd go there and I'd put the suit on, run like half a lap and just be like, this is like, get me out of the suit now. Um, and be like, get me out, get me out. And those were the days where I'm like, oh, like if I show up on game day and I can't, you know, see this thing through, I'm going to be, gosh, I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to be, you know, all these things real hard on myself, you know. Um, but, you know, then you'd go out the next day and you'd have a really good day. Um and for me, you know, I knew I just had to beat that record by, you know, one second, you know, I, in practice, I had ran a sub 10 minute mile at one point. And I, the record I think was like an 11, 11 something. And so running sub 10, I was like, oh, I got this, you know, and come game day, you know, time to, time to do it. You know, I looked at John cause he was actually the one that paced me through this and, you know, we wanted to run a sub 10, like, let's just blow it out of the water. And then, you know, I looked at him right before we went, and I was like, I just have to beat this record by a second. Let's not, let's not ruin it and go out too hot and then, you know, completely burn out. Uh, so that's what we did. Let me ask you something though. Let me stop you right there. Was that self-doubt on your part or was that, I just got to get this done. So I'm not hard on myself. Wh which one was it? Because you had already run sub nines. You were having no problem with it. You had a guy that was there encouraging you to do that. Were you hedging your bets or were you really thinking like, let's just get it done for the mission? So I had a male counterpart, Sean Matson. Love, love you, bud. <laughs> he, uh, he was supposed to be running the, for the male world record the same day. And this was his third attempt. And if there was any piece of advice that he gave me through this time was do not go out too hot. Cause that's what happened to him. The first two times he was like, he crushed the first two laps and then the lactic acid builds up. And once you hit that wall in the bomb suit, you don't have any more go left in your tank. And he's like, just don't do it. And um, so I, I definitely took a lot of that advice from him and you know, I felt it when, you know, at certain times when I was practicing and, you know, leading up to it where like I, I would hit that wall and you can't take another step, like 
your fatigue, it just gets so like, it just takes over to the point where you can't, you can't move. And, uh, so I definitely heated that. I was like, let, let's just be a little bit more conservative for the first couple laps. And then, you know, I think by lap three, we're like, okay, we're cruising. And he's, John's telling me the time and the pace. And I'm like, okay, I got this. I know how I'm feeling. And then you kind of like taking it all in a little bit. And you're like, all right, let's go. And by the last lap we were cruising and, uh, yeah, then I, you know, I, you know, I remember him taking my helmet off and I was like, did we do it? <laughs> did we make it? <laughs> Well, I, I know that a lot had gone into that, uh, and actually he was supposed to run with you that same day, the guy that was setting the the mail record, right? And the mail record at that time was like seven minutes or something like that. It was like a crazy number. Um, yeah. Yours not a cra- uh, was in its own a crazy number to do in a bomb suit, especially <laughs> with where you were at. When you look at it, though, and he doesn't show up that day, does that put any self-doubt in you? Like, oh, shit. Like, the person that was supposed to do this, too, is not here. Maybe this is not achievable because he's tried this three times. Does that put any doubt? And and then how do you you really, at that time, we've talked the whole time where you have to just focus on getting the mission done, putting your emotions in check. At that point, when you're there that day, it's time to kick that shit into the ground and go like you have no time to go through that. So what do you do to mentally get yourself back on track and get ready to go? Great question. Yeah, no, the, oh, that was soul crushing. I remember getting that, sh- that, you know, phone call from Sean. I think it was like the night before. And, uh, he's like, I'm not, I'm not gonna be able to do it. Some, some, something medical came up and I was just like, you're going to make me do this by myself tomorrow. Okay. Um, and so I remember it was at, uh, John Matson university and, uh, the track there is up on a hill and you, you feel all the wind. And I remember getting there and I remember getting there a few hours early before the crowd and everything else. And, uh, it was so windy and I don't know if it was in my head or what, but I remember calling the guy that was running it. I was like, no, you don't understand. It is so windy. I don't know if we should do it today. And to me, that was me just like, you know, getting in my own head. And he's just like, no, we're doing this. And then what after that, that everything started to set in. It was just like, all right, ready or not, today's the day. So it's time, <laughs> time to buckle up. And when you do it, uh, 10 minutes, 23 seconds, right? Yes. <laughs> How do you feel when you're done? Uh it was, it was, it was, a, it was one of the best feelings. It was just like, got the helmet off. I think I was crying. I think my parents were crying. Everyone, it was just like, it was such a great feeling. And I was just like, I think I blacked out. What just happened? Like, I don't even remember running the mile. <laughs> um, There's champagne and all these, you know, everything, all the media and everything else. And it's just a great day. And Ashley, um, the female with the previous world record, she was there supporting me, which meant a lot. Um, yeah, it was just, it was just an awesome day. I I think you, I'm going to quote you. You said, I feel like I can breathe for the first time in a long time. Yep. Yeah. I think it was just so much, you know, anxiety and animosity, you know, just like leading up to like this event where it's just like, well, I signed up to do this and, and, you know, there's so many people coming out to this and there's a lot of, you know, money and stuff riding on this and, Oh, gosh, I hope I just don't disappoint everybody that came out. 
So after it was done, it was just like, oh God, what a relief. I can, you know, focus on other things and that's that chapter's done. Um, I, I do want to point out something. Now you have said that you're not a crying person. You're not a huggy person, but this is two times in this conversation that we've had that you said you cried. I just want to point that out that maybe you cry more often than you think you do. Yeah, I would definitely say, you know, big, bigger events for sure. I mean, I, I'm definitely human. Um, I think that comes from a place of just like, usually my demeanor is very, uh, because I have a kind of a hard demeanor. People don't really know what I'm thinking. And I'm sure my cadets are always just like, my cadet, oh, they're just so, they're so funny. But I think they, they like to see, you know, me being human sometimes. So. <laughs> I, I do want to point out something else before we get into like the tactical games and the seven X project. Um, I, I want to know something to you with competition. Okay. Uh -huh. I want to pose this question to you. Why do we want to win so bad in competition? And I'm talking, we as in the world and people, and then conversely to that, why do you want to win so bad? Oh, good question. So I think, you know, I think we as a people, you know, if you've ever experienced putting hard work into something, that hard work paying off and winning or getting that medal or being recognized for the hard work, there's nothing, there's nothing better. You know, you know, all the blood, sweat and tears that went into something, you know, the hours that it took, like things don't just happen. You don't just overnight become, you know, fit, you know, so when you're at competitions and things and when you're on the podium, you, you kind of just like, okay, I'm on the right track. I'm doing things that work. I, I, you know, all this isn't for nothing. Um, I'm a very competitive person. I think that's why people like to compete that feeling. Um, for me, I mean, it's pretty much the same answer. It's just like, I've had tastes of what it feels like to, you know, be the best or be, you know, on the podium and nothing, nothing quite beats it. Um, and I, and I think as you get older, those, those victories tend to become less and less, you know? Um, so for me, just trying to stay in the game. <laughs> how long do you think you'll be able to do this for? How long do you think you'll be able to keep this up? You know, I would, I would say like realistically, I think I have a, another 10, 10 years in me. Okay. Like Any injuries? Care. <laughs> Any injuries oh, yeah. that, that have set you back? Can we talk about a couple of the injuries? Oh, for sure. I mean, I have a torn rotator cuff, torn labral. I have a back uh, herniation. I have my, my right hips torn. Um, for me, it's a bunch of joint issues. Not I haven't really broken anything, but for me, it's just a bunch of tears. And, you know, always just, you know, are we going to get surgery on this one? Are we going to wait? And, you know, I haven't had any surgeries yet. I've kind of just kind of pushed through these injuries and strengthen everything around them. You know, when it was, it was December, I was in the, uh, in the ER because I had uh, that my bulge in my back, it was pinching a nerve and I couldn't walk. <laughs> so I was in the ER like two months ago and now I'm just finally like, all right, putting weight back on the bar and, you know, getting ready for, for what's next, all the upcoming projects and competitions and, you know, injuries and setbacks happen and it's kind of how you choose to mentally and physically bounce back from them. If you sit there and feel sorry for yourself and you're just like, gosh, I'm never going to 
you know, pick up weights again. I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to, then, you know, that factors that, you know, that your mental capacity to endure some of those injuries is definitely a factor in how fast you can get back into it. So what do you think you're stronger at? Are you more mentally strong? Or are you more physically strong? Currently, <laughs> I think I'm meant more mentally strong. Um, definitely right now working to get my strength back up. Like I said, I'm definitely not where I was before the, the back injury. Um, but gosh, you know, I was just talking to uh, my boyfriend earlier about this, about just like, you know, certain people, they either practice well or they perform well kind of thing. Um, you know, I have, you know, friends that are, you know, show up to the gym, they crush CrossFit workouts. And then sometimes they go to perform and just like, what happened? You're like you crush it at the gym and then you went on, you know, went on the floor and I, what happened, it's you know? Performance and, uh, anxiety. Yeah. And it, it re I, I really think that that has a huge factor into it. I think that you can, I, I would love to, here's the way I feel about tests. I would love to, I can explain it to you with no problem, do whatever I need to do, right? But you mm -hmm. put that pressure on there. I can still perform and still do as good as I would. But there's that, that you don't want to disappoint yourself, one, and there's that extra layer added to it. So I think that that happens with a lot of people, that performance anxiety, when they're just doing it and they're in that zone and not even thinking about it, they work so much better. And if we could tap into that as, as humans, can you imagine the level of competition that would happen? Oh, for sure. It's, things are so mental. And, you know, for, for me, I, I just, I love competing. I love, I love when there's more people watching. There's just something about me that's just like, all right, time to, you know, kind of put on a show. You, you kind of get this little, like, I don't know if it's a little bit of cockiness or whatever, but for me, it's just like, I have worked too damn hard to show up today and not show off what I've been working so hard for. Um, I love to compete. I'm one of those, I, I, I perform, I think better under pressure because <laughs> if you see me at the, you know, I joke because, you know, I show up to the gym and I'm still, you know, nursing my back injury. I'm just like, Oh gosh, you know, like, uh, you know, toe in the line of what's too much, what's, you know, where can I push? Where can I not? Where shouldn't I? Um, but if I were to compete tomorrow, you'd never know. Cause I'm like, all right, you know, I don't feel any pain today. We're good. We're going to push through it. So um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Let's talk about the tactical games. Uh, you went as a team last year that did not work out. Well, you're going to be competing as an individual this year. I think it's a little your fault. We'll talk about that later. We'll talk about that after the show. I think it's a little your fault, but you went as a team, you found out that's not the way you want to do it. Um, now you're going to be individual com competition. Let's talk about team and individual what's good, what's bad, and why you've decided to go down this individual route? Um, so, yeah, I went team. And uh, for me, my first tactical games experience, I didn't even, I didn't have my own rifle. I didn't have my own pistol. I was borrowing all of my gear. And for me, going team was like, I don't know what this is all about. And I would like to go team to kind of just have a little bit more fun with it. I still want to be competitive, but it kind of takes the edge off going as a team and having a partner than when you're going solo. Uh, so that's why I decided to go my first my first run at the tackle games as a as a partner as a team. Okay, with you saying all that, and you wanted to take the edge off and have fun. 
Hearing the story about you going and actually performing does not sound like you wanted to have fun at all. Does not sound like you just wanted to compete. It sounded like you wanted to win. Now, you got ninth place, but it doesn't sound like any of the answer you just gave. So I don't know if you're being honest about what you wanted to do there. <laughs> so I think that was my mentality going into it. What actually happened was I got there and I just, I, I'm just, I love to compete. I love to be competitive and like, you know, I had so much in the tank, you know, and I was just like itching to get out there. And it's very, you know, competing is very simple for me. You know, like you give me a task, you go do this, then you do this and then you're done. And so like, I love that, you know, and, <laughs> and, and so, yeah, okay. So my competitive side and that, that definitely kicked in that weekend. <laughs> All right. Now let's talk about something that's coming up um, with this, with the individual competition. This year you're competing on your own. Everything rides on you, as we know, and we've talked about in this conversation, that doesn't seem to be a problem with you. You kind of want that that pressure on to you. Um, anything that you learned from that first time, even though it was a team competition, anything that you learned from that that you're taking into this that people maybe that are looking into doing something like this should consider, like, I'm talking about like when the guy gave you all the information for the EOD, uh, the, the bomb suit run. Is there anything that you can talk about that you've learned to tell other people that might be looking into this? Um, yeah, so I'll answer the first part of that. So like going into this, um, I think you're right. Like I do like being an individual as far as competing. That way, whether I do well or I fail too well, that's all on me. You know, and I, I'll, you know, I'll take that burden, that responsibility. I definitely have deficiencies uh, in the tactile games. For me, I'm, I'm not an experienced shooter. Like I shoot, um, but as far as my, you know, my peers in the sport, like they are kick-ass at shooting, and I have a lot to learn in that realm. So when I show up, you know, for my first individual competition, it'll definitely be like. I'll be able to fitness, but will I be able to shoot? And so for me, um, trying to get the reps in shooting. And so if I take last place in my division because I sucked at shooting, so be it. At least now I know, you know, what I need to work on. So I, the onus being on me as an individual, I think that's that's going to be helpful for me to be a better competitor in the future. Um, as far as advice that I would give, it's a very expensive sport. Um, so if you don't if you're not equipped with pistols and rifles and all of that, borrow, borrow from friends, reach out to people in the community. There's the community is so incredible. Um, that's one of the reasons why I like, I'm like, I, I'm going to stick with the tactile games. Like I'm actually putting CrossFit aside and on the back burner because I want to focus on the tactile games. And, um, so I would definitely say borrow your gear, um, and buy it at little, you know, little pieces at a time. Because, gosh, you know, you look at some of the competition pistols, they're $5,000. Um, who has that kind of money? And then you got to buy the rifle and the scope and all the gear. And, you know, what what's the best, you know, mag holders and all these pouches and all these things and your plate carrier. So I would just say if you're going to do it and try it, definitely borrow as much gear as you can to make sure this is something that you really want to do and really want to commit to. Um, and then they actually have a bunch of you know, training opportunities online that you can sign up for, whether it's the physical fitness or dry firing drills at home. The Tassel Games definitely has a plethora of different options for people getting into this to start training. So, All right, let's talk about 
the team that's coming up. And I really hope you treat this teammate a lot better. Uh, <laughs> you'll be doing the 7X Performance Project. Uh, so Zach got a hold of you, said, hey, they got this crazy idea, do all these jumps, do these marathons, these swims, all this kind of stuff. Um, that's like the ultimate competition, seven continents, seven days. I mean, that's, that's pushing it. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And in all fairness, Zach was there that weekend. So he saw everything. So he knew what he was getting into. <laughs> so with that, when you, when you go into this, when you get the call about it, What's your first thought? Because, like I said, that's like the ultimate competition. I mean, the ultimate of the ultimate competition. Oh, oh yeah. I almost didn't believe him. He, like, called me, and he's like, do you want to do this thing? And he explains it. My my jaw was just on the floor. I was like, what? Like, this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It was so crazy that, like, he's like, so, like, I want to invite you. I'm going to talk to Ryan about, you know, maybe we can get you on. And honestly, I didn't even hold my breath. Like, I don't think I heard back from Zach for a few weeks. And uh, during that time, I was just like, there's no way this is going to happen. Like, there's no way. Like, this is, like, this is too wild. This is too crazy. This is too out there. Why would they want me to go? You know, like, I I was just shocked. And then uh, he called and he's like, Ryan loved the idea, you know, he had heard about you back when you did the the run and yeah, jump on board, start raising some money. And uh, I was like, <laughs> I was like, call my mom. I was like, it's happening. Like, we're going to do this. And or at least I'm going to try, you know, um, it all kind of rested upon raising a hundred thousand dollars. And I, was I think you're like, a little over 10,000 right now. Yeah. Yeah. Go fund me. You know, I have um, a, a few, a few leads kind of lined up right now that I'm hoping come through. That's been the hardest part is just trying to, you know, meet with different people, see, you know, if anybody would be interested in supporting this. And honestly, I've had a few big names kind of be like, yeah, I'm interested. And then I kind of tell them what it's about. And you'd be surprised how people are just like, okay, we'll get back to you. It's almost like they don't even believe that this is about to happen. And so like at first they were on board and then they're just like, this doesn't sound right. And I'm like, no, it is. And it's for a great cause. Like, so it's kind of, it's, it's kind of wild. It's so crazy that there's people that are like up and down as far as even donating. Cause it, it, it does sound crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> what do you hope to achieve out of this? Because it's not competing against anyone. This one's really competing against yourself. They have the medical doctors there to, to figure out the performance and the, um, kind of healing yourself back and getting back into the performance. So what are you hoping to gain out of all this? Um, For me, I mean, it already started as far as, you know, spreading awareness and um, being, you know, just another advocate for, for mental health and suicide prevention amongst first line responders. Um, But as far as the actual trip goes, I think, you know, Zach and I have talked in depth just about, being present and trying not to, you know, let it go by too fast and trying to, you know, be there and take it all in. And, you know, on the back end, we'll have um, different things that we'll be able to, you know, help raise more funds um, from it, like the documentary and and the, you know, packets that we'll be able to hand out um, as far as guidelines go for, you know, 
mental health awareness, like how to get back to true north. Um, so we'll have that on the back end. But I think as far as just the trip goes, uh, just trying to be present and just trying to take it all in and, you know, be there. Let me ask you one other question about all this with the mental health and everything. And it's a question I asked Zach, and I want you to be completely honest. Are you 100% comfortable in your skin? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I would say for the most, I, for the most part, I mean, I know I have a lot of self-work that I need to do. Um, but I am, I think I'm putting that work in. And uh, I'm happy with where I'm at. I'm happy. I'm happy with think life is good right now. Like, like it's hard to complain about with life right now. But um, I am comfortable with who I am. <laughs> okay. So with that question, I add on to this. You wanting to spread mental health awareness, you wanting to tell people how to be comfortable in their own skin. How do you do that with yourself and do it with the public in general? Because this is going to be a big thing that you're, this is going to be the big push from this. So how do you take that and transform it into what you want it to be? Um, I, I think, you know, through getting comfortable with talking on camera and, you know, sharing some of my struggles and, you know, social media can be such a, such a mask for people. Um, as far as like, you, they, you only, you can only put out there what you want people to see. And so sometimes people see you through, you know, those rose colored lenses that you, you know, you put out there and, you know, the more I get comfortable talking in front of the, the camera, the easier it'll be to, you know, let people know that it's okay. And like, you're not alone. And, you know, I know I'm not the only one that goes through bouts of depression. And I think, you know, other people hearing, you know, oh, she, she goes through depression too. Like, okay, well, how does she get over it? And, you know, I, I'm not by any means like an expert at this. I just know what works for, for me. Um, so if that helps somebody and if, you know, me helping to, you know, if the funds that we raise from this or anything like that can help and contribute to, you know, somebody else, you know, seeking, seeking help or finding the light, so to speak. Um, you know, that, that's what it's about. And the last question before we get into where people can find you, what do you want your legacy to be? Wow. <laughs> I, I think my, you know, my legacy that's such a great question. <laughs> Just trying to pass on, like, you know, and, and, you know, I keep coming back to this. So, so maybe this is trying to tell me something, but, um, you know, I want to be a role model to, to a lot of people, but specifically I want to be a role model to, to females and showing them like, it is okay to be strong. It's okay to, you know, put yourself out there and, you know, make some, go make some noise, go, you know, um, have a presence. Um, I, I think, you know, in, in today's day and age, you know, you know, I just think it's just so important that females understand that they, they can do so much more than, uh, than they think they can. You know, that's, I think it's awesome if I can be a role model to, you know, both male and female, you know, people, but, you know, it's, it's definitely, it's extra cool to see females step out of, you know, being comfortable and kind of chasing their dreams and being uncomfortable. So I think something along those lines.
I think that uh, I think you've got an idea of. I, I think you're still forming that though, because yeah, I've heard you I say agree. before. I, I I've heard you say before about how when you receive letters from girls and stuff that say they joined the army because of you or they they did this because of you, uh, that that makes you. And I want to point out that was one more time that you said you cried um, was <laughs> when you get letters like that. But I'm not pointing out every time you cried, but. I, <laughs> I, I really think that that is a, a legacy to strive towards to show people, you know, that it is going to be okay. And that's a big thing that we talk about on this show that, that people are not just soldiers. People are not just first responders. People are not just law enforcement. People are a rounded, messy, you know, lumps of clay. There is so much to them. And we want to get through that. There might be parts that we can just fix up a little bit and keep moving because Everyone has something to give back to society, I, I, I think, um, that, that want to get out there and want to do the right thing and tell the story. And it's appreciative that you do that. So where can people find you if they want more about either the tactical games, the performance project? Where can they donate to you? And where can they just find you as a social media presence? Yeah, so it's just social media, simple, just Instagram, katie.m.hernandez. Uh, that's where I'm at on social media and all the links are in there. And obviously if anybody had questions about tactile games and such, people reach out all the time. So feel free, but yeah, just Instagram. That's the usual, that's my platform. <laughs> where can people donate to help you for the seven X? Um, that will also be in a link um, in my bio and it's just a GoFundMe link and part of the human performance uh, project. All right. So what do you got planned? Past 7X, past the tactical games. What's our five-year plan? What are we looking at down the road, Katie? Oh, that's a great that's a great question. Um, so currently trying to figure that out. Um, I actually have my packet together to potentially get out of the military. So if and when that happens, I have a few ideas floating around. Um, potentially another shift into another three-letter agency. Um, so, yeah, just uh, keeping my options open, talking to a few people right now to see what's on the horizon. But, yeah, so... That might be next. Anything else that you want to promote before we end this up? Oh man, I think I promoted <laughs> my, my big ones. Uh, <laughs> um, but no, I, I'm excited for the human performance project coming up. That that's that is definitely my uh, my short term goal right now. So all right. Well, you have an amazing story. We're glad that you came on. We we look forward to seeing how you perform in the tactical games, how this seven X performance project ends up. Uh, and we're excited to see what's happening in the future with all of your competition. You have about 10 years left, so we've got quite a bit of time to see how it goes. So, guys, I think that's going to be it for the conversation tonight. If you want more of me, you know where you can always find me. I'm on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. I'm on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and I'm on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. Now, your one-stop shop for this show is dtdpodcast.net. You can go there. You can see the audio, the video, pictures from the guests, their own episode pages, their bios, their links, everything that you want to know about them. It's probably the best site that's ever been designed. So go and check it out. dtdpodcast.net. It's everything that you need to know about the show. Also, make sure you share, like, and subscribe. Help us to grow. We are growing right now, but we can do even better. 
make sure that you stop by our sponsor, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. Now, every week I tell you about them. I tell you that they're an officer-owned business. I tell you they craft the finest coffees, and they're shipped to you as soon as they are made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not miss one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee's some of the best you'll find. But here's the big thing. It also helps in our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. And to point out, we have a flavor alert. One Ranger, Sweet Pecan, and we have NYPD Brew. You mix those with your pumpkin spice, your peppermint mocha, you've got a winner. Make sure you go there, put in DJK10, that'll give you 10% off your order. Guys, that's going to be it for this week. Thank you so much to my guest, Katie. Good luck to her in the tactical games. Good luck in the 7X performance project. That's going to be it. That's Katie. I'm DJ. We'll catch you guys on the next one. We'll see you later. <laughs>